0: Father, we have gathered believing that Jesus is God the Son, the Son of God, the Savior of all who come and put their faith in him. And So we turn our attention to these written words, praying that your Holy Spirit will open our eyes and our hearts to see him who is the living word. That all distractions and thoughts and notions, whether it's um, air temperature or noise or confusion or frustration or emotion or, or discontent or celebration or any spectrum of human experience, Lord, that we might focus on him. As we have in our songs and in our receipt uh, of, of the, the elements of your table and As we have prayed together and and joined in fellowship, may we also now join in harmony with your word. That we might know Jesus better. That we might submit to him more thoroughly and more fully and might be transformed into his image. That we might take one step this week, this day, this month, um, to be more in conformity with who he is and what he has called us to be. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Um, We're going to wrap up our time with John the Baptist today. Um, and uh, if you, you've been following along, um, John is a, a bit of a weirdo. Um, He is dressed in camel hair and eating honey and locusts, and um, he is confronting the religious institution of his day. Uh, challenging the power structure um, because of the way that they had taken what God had given in the in the scriptures and they had converted it into a very human system to maintain a human status quo in the name of faith, in the name of religion. Um, and they had basically written off or rewritten and, and uh, retroactively redesigned faith to conform to their beliefs. And so John's been preaching a message, he isn't holding anything back, and he says um, that um, the one that is coming after him, in verse 11, he says, uh, chapter Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, he who is coming after me is mightier than I am, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Um, and we talked last week about when Jesus enters a situation, there's really only two ways you can go. You can repent, or you can be judged. There is no distinction. There is no uh, uh, gray area. And then in verse 13, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13, then Jesus came. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, he said, Let it be so now, allow it now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, uh, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, I'm There's a lot going on in these very few verses, and I think sometimes we just blow through it. John is at the Jordan. Jesus shows up. John baptizes Jesus. God says, this is my beloved son. Let's move on to the really interesting parts where he's feeding 5,000 people and stuff like that. But there is a lot packed into this moment. This is the moment for all four gospel writers. This is the moment when Jesus begins his ministry. Everything before this has been preamble, it has been preface, it has been setting up, it has been clearing the way for Jesus to appear. Um, And so when he finally arrives, we need to pause and we need to think about what's happening here. In verse 13, the first thing is when Jesus came from Galilee. The Greek word that appears there, that's translated as came, appears only three times in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, The first time is when the Magi arrive in Jerusalem looking for Jesus, or Jericho looking for Jesus. The second time is when John, in the first part of this chapter, in verse 1, it says, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. Uh, And this third time is when Jesus arrives. No one else will (laughs) arrive this way in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. It, it is uh, the, um, the precursors to Jesus and then Jesus' arrival. The, the Magi arrive looking for the Son of God, looking for the one who is born King of the Jews. John arrives preaching that the King of the Jews, the Messiah, is coming soon. Um, and remember his, his phrase, his sermon, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, could be translated, look around, see what's wrong, change it, Because the king arrives and now Jesus shows up. But there's some interesting things about the way that Jesus shows up. First he shows up from Galilee. And we mentioned this when we talked about Nazareth in chapter two, that Galilee was kind of a, a second-class group of Jews. They were they were uh, less than the Jerusalem and Judea Jews. They they were looked down upon because they had mixed heritage. They had Gentiles in their lineage. They had been dominated by um, other kingdoms for a long time. But Jesus comes from Nazareth. Um, uh, comes from Galilee, and he comes the long way around. Um, Nazareth is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, but but normally the normal pilgrimage route would be to go up above the Sea of Galilee, come down the eastern bank uh, of the Jordan River. Or the Jordan River. When we talk in the news today about the West Bank, that's the West Bank of the Jordan River. The eastern bank of the Jordan River is today the nation of Jordan. Used to be called the Trans Jordan, um, across the Jordan. Um, but um, but the, they they would come down the Jordan River to avoid Samaria, uh, and Luke talks about that a little bit, but they would avoid Samaria, and then they would cross the Jordan River at the ford um, at what is what was called Bethany beyond Jordan, that's where John was baptizing. So John is in the water, he's baptizing, he's preaching, and Matthew gives the sense that John is literally preaching the sermon that ends in verse 12 when Jesus arrives. And Jesus arrives, and it appears he's on the eastern bank of the water, and he steps down into the water and starts walking toward John. And he is going to be baptized. And as he does that, um, the phrase in verse, verse 14, John would have prevented him. The, the Greek form is that John keeps telling him not to come in. John keeps saying, no, 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 no not Jesus. No, nope, no, nope, don't. I, you're not. I'm, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be coming for my baptism. And Jesus just keeps walking. Um, I, I like to think that Jesus got this from his mom, this persistence. Uh, Mary was a very uh, persistent strong uh, woman and I I, I like to think that as Jesus was growing up Mary was always teaching him you know you do what God has called you to do you don't let anybody stop you Um, and John John is preaching he's been preaching that Jesus would be coming but now Jesus is coming and doing something unexpected. It looks as if John did not expect Jesus to come and be baptized by him. Jesus was going to show up, and he was going to be the Messiah, and John, I guess, was just going to hand things over to him, and Jesus keeps coming. And so you have this moment, and we know from the Gospel of Luke that these guys are cousins, all right? So John sees Jesus coming, and goes, okay, good. It's time for Jesus to take over, and Jesus is getting in the water, and he keeps getting deeper, and John's saying, no, don't, no, don't. And Jesus says... You have to allow this, let it be so now in verse fifteen. He says, "You have to allow this to happen. You can't resist what God is doing here. He says it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I always find it interesting. Um, Matthew has this way of writing that if you're if you're reading, He will clue in certain things by the words he chooses. Now, in most cases, um, in most of the Bible, the word righteousness means conformity to to the law, to the Torah, to the teachings of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, It seems to be the word um, that is used, the the sense that's used when when Matthew describes uh, Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, as a just man. That is, he is a righteous man. He's a, a Torah observant. He's doing all the right things. He's obedient and submissive to the authority of Scripture. What's interesting is that Jesus says this must be done to fulfill all righteousness and there is no command in Scripture that says Jesus has to be baptized. There is nothing in Torah that says in order for Jesus to be a prophet or a priest or anything like that, that he has to be baptized by by John. So what is Jesus talking about? What does he mean? Um Jesus uh, has a fundamental understanding of the righteousness of God that is not just following all of the rules that are spelled out, but the very heart and will of God. Now, the heart and will of God are never out of conformity with the Word of God, but righteousness is more than just doing the minimum of meeting the requirements and the rules. Uh, Jesus actually illustrates this later on in his ministry when a rich young ruler comes to him and and he says he wants to be one of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus says, great, keep all the commandments. The rich young ruler says, I've kept all the commandments since I was a kid. He says, I've got it down. I have followed every single rule. And Jesus says, well, now give away everything that you have. And the man goes away weeping. And why does he go away weeping? Because he thought that righteousness was defined by the rules. Now, the righteous follow the rules, but righteousness is not defined by the rules. Um, People who sit around trying to get together a list of rules that satisfy the criteria of righteousness, those are the same people who tend to develop loopholes in the rules so they can get away with stuff that they know isn't right. All right? I mean, this is isn't this in the nature of humanity? If we can solidify the rules, then we can figure out what we can get away with. I was a, a elementary school um, supervisor for one year in a Christian school. Let me just tell you, by the way, th- there are few <laughs> there are few kid blocks of the population better at reading the rule book and finding loopholes than kids in Christian schools. Um, and, and it, it's one of the problems of having a Christian school is that Christian schools, by necessity, have to codify what it means to be moral and ethical in a rule book. And when you say to a kid, well, I know that's not exactly what the rule says. Um, now, uh, let me even beyond the elementary principal thing, let me let me scroll back a little bit to when I was a high school English teacher before they were crazy enough to make put me in charge for a year um, The Christian school I went to, we had a very simple rule that uh, girls, female students, were allowed to have earrings and guys were not, okay? All right, you know, hey, agree or disagree, that's the way the rule was, okay? And they were allowed to have two earrings in their ears, all right? They were allowed to have two, and the way the, the thing was phrased was they were allowed two piercings. And it did not say ears. Well, this was the late 90s, early 2000s when belly button piercings became popular. And I was asked by the principal to verify whether the female students had belly button piercings. And I said... There is no way I am enforcing that rule. I'm not going to walk up to a teenage girl and ask her if her belly button is pierced. Negatory. Sorry. Faulty communication. But you know how the kids kids got around the rule? They said, well, it says two piercings. I only have one in my ear. Therefore. Now, You've been with me for any amount of time. Um, you know the face I make when somebody says something like this. Usually the eyebrow goes up, and I'm like, "Really?" That's my response. I got that from the female super <laughs> the female person that they had involved with these kids. Um, my mom used to do it too. But they would she would just look at them and go, "Really? That's the argument you're going to make? That's really where you're going with this?" But we like to have rules, right? We like to have rules. Because if we have rules, we can find the exceptions. How many have ever played Monopoly with somebody who likes to find loopholes? They're the reason that Monopoly takes three and a half years to finish a game. If you play Monopoly by the rules, a game of Monopoly should not take more than an hour. All these dumb house rules people come up with, and they play forever and ever and ever. People love to find loopholes. They fi- love to find uh, gamesmanship. And Jesus says, this is not what righteousness is. Righteousness is greater. He goes, there's no command for me to be baptized, but I'm going to be baptized because this is the baptism of repentance for the coming of the kingdom. And if the king is not in conformity with the righteousness of the kingdom, we have a problem. So Jesus says, you better let it go. Now what's really interesting is right at this moment, this is the moment when Jesus takes over. Up until this point, John has been the public preacher. Everybody's been listening to John preach. Isn't it great? He's wonderful. Camel hair, leather belt, locusts and honey. Repent for the kingdom of God as hand. This is fantastic. This is good for merchandising. There's people selling John the Baptist sweatshirts, memorial Memorial camel hair shirts. They are all excited about John funneling proselytes and, and pilgrims into Jerusalem. And as they come into Jerusalem, they're hearing about the great preacher. Everything's fantastic. But in this this moment jesus reveals who's really in charge of this situation john is saying no 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 and jesus says this is god's will make it happen and john says yes right then in verse 16 when jesus was baptized And this is a moment when Matthew uses language to his advantage. He says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. I'm going to read the rest of this. But that word immediately is the same word that is used to translate in verse verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. The word straight is the same word that's translated immediately here. This is the moment when the Messiah is declared by John the Baptist. And he is declared by God himself. This is the making, the way, preparing the way of the Lord, making his path straight. John was actually resisting his job to declare Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus says we have to fulfill all righteousness. John submits. He baptizes Jesus. When Jesus comes up out of the water, when it is, when it is immediate happens, when he comes up out of the water, he went up from the water, and behold, the waters, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now again, Matthew, borrowing language from the Hebrew Scriptures, in the creation story, when God creates the heavens and the earth, the waters are split for the new creation. So Jesus splits the water, God splits the heavens, And together they declare Jesus to be the Son of God. All of creation funneled down into one point, standing in for all of creation, Jesus being incarnate, being a man, walking among us, and now at this moment, fulfilling all righteousness, coming out of the water, the water split, the heavens split, the Spirit of God descends. And then God the Father speaks. Um, This is Matthew presenting to us the Trinity. That God the Son is is in the water. God the Spirit descends. And God the Father speaks. You say, why do we call him God the Father? Well, Jesus calls him Father, so we're in good shape. But because of this moment, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. There are many people who misunderstand this language to say, well, Jesus wasn't really God's son until this moment. It's called adoptionism, is the doctrinal belief. They believe that Jesus was a just a regular everyday person until this moment when he was baptized. The Spirit of God descended on him and made him something else. He became, he was endowed with sonship. That's not actually the language that's being used here this was the language this phrase this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased this is the language you would use to publicly pass the mantle to your son biological or unbiological under roman law you 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 could have as many sons as you wanted you could have as many daughters as you wanted with as many women as you wanted rome was pretty free about that kind of stuff But when you chose your heir, you had to bring him to, into a public place and you had to declare, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This declaration is the flip side. It's the God side of John's message. John says, repent, look around, see what's wrong, get straight, because the king is arriving. And then when Jesus is baptized, the sky opens and God says, My son has arrived. This is the moment when the gospel goes from being an eschatological messianic movement. Did you love those phrases? The idea that the end of the world is coming and the Messiah is going to show up, the anticipation of this someday this Messiah, this abstract idea. And there were there were messianic movements all over Judaism for for centuries waiting for some king. But this is the moment for Matthew and for all of the other gospel writers, this is the moment when the king is declared to be the king. Jesus is recognized as the Messiah by the last of the prophets, John the, John the Baptist. He fulfills all righteousness of the law. So he has, Jesus will later say, think not that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. And throughout Matthew's gospel, he will show himself to be a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So he has recognized By the last of the prophets, he fulfills the law, and then God himself declares him to be the son of God. This represents a seismic shift of the authority over faith. If we as followers of Christ truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Savior, is the Son of God, there has to be a seismic shift of authority in our thinking, in our minds, in our spirits. Too often, we Christians become very comfortable thinking of being a Christian as being basically following the rules, uh, a set of of tools, a set of uh, rules and a bag of tools. All I have to do is just maintain the bare minimum and I pass. Does it bother anyone, by the way, that uh, somebody going through med school who gets C's is still a doctor? Don't you want a doctor that got A's? We we want somebody that was he was like well you know I was fair to middling on diagnosis let's see what's wrong with you got C plus shouldn't be a problem that's a leg I know that much you know you feel really good and some of you have had doctors that you want really want to ask for their transcript right like we've all had those I had a doctor one time um, I was headed to uh, I was headed to Honduras I had to go get some vaccinations and um, the doctor sat down and we were talking about it. And he started listening to vaccinations I needed. And because I had been on the State Department website, you know, done my research, I knew there was a vaccination I needed. um, And there were a few that were required. And he never mentioned the one that I needed. Um, And so I suggested to him, do I need this? Right. And he literally said to me, huh, I'm not sure. Let me go check. I, I don't I don't feel good about that. I I don't, I don't, I don't feel good about that. You know, um, you know, that was like the time my dad was having a surgery and the surgeon came in and he goes, well, I've never done this before. And we were like, what? (laughs) And then he left. Um, that was amazing. That was the time I was in Boston for like 12 hours wearing a mask because Cambridge required you to wear a mask outside. Um, anyway, um, We Christians, we like like to have the bag of tools, the set of rules, do the bare minimum to get in. But there should be a seismic shift of the authority over our lives when Jesus arrives. When you came to faith in Jesus, it was not just adding him on top of everything else that you are. He is just the last 3% of what you needed to be righteous before God. That is not what Jesus does. Jesus is not, Jesus did not come and die on the cross and be raised from the dead to top off your righteousness. To give you just enough to get through the, through the thing. He came to declare himself Victor over death, sovereign over life and death, the judge of the quick and the dead, the righteousness of the law, the fulfillment of the prophets, the son of God, God the Son, the eternal and always ruling and sovereign Lord of lords and king, Lord of lords and king of kings. If there is not a seismic shift in your thinking, in your believing, in the trajectory of your life when Jesus enters, then what are we doing? As believers, we always go through a cycle of fitting into complacency, do we not? We get comfortable with things, we get good at things. I was a pastor's kid. I'm very good at going to church. I get up on Sunday morning almost on autopilot. I get up on Sunday morning. I do the various oblations that have to be done. Um, I iron my clothes. If I hadn't done it the night before, usually I do it the night before. I'm dressed. I'm ready to go. Um, I am always early. My dad taught me that, that 15 minutes early is 10 minutes late. I am always uh, present. I'm ready to go. I've got everything lined up. I'm very good at going to church. So I can just do church on autopilot. I have the I grew up in church mode. Some of the kids here have this mode, and they're in it right now. You click off the part of you that controls your visual responses. Your internal part is doing something entirely different, but you're in church. Um, We had a lady when I was growing up. This is just a little story, but we we had a lady in our church. uh, Her name was Wally Whitner, and she slept through every church service. She would sit in the back with her mom, um, and she would sleep. But she had some kind of sonar or something that every time my dad said something that should have prompted someone to say amen, Wally would literally do this, amen. (laughs) And the kids, now this sounds weird, but us kids, we wanted to sit in the back to watch. We thought this was just the coolest thing we'd ever seen. How is this even possible? Like this woman is comatose. But Jesus, but pastor says, and Jesus died for your sins. Amen. We can, we can be on autopilot. And yet when Jesus, when, when Jesus arrives, he should be shaking us up. You as a believer, you as a follower of Jesus, there should be times when you're studying the Scriptures, you're praying, or you're in a worship service, you're in a teaching time, you're in a Bible study, where Jesus shakes the foundations of who you are. And you have to fix the direction you're headed. You, you, can't, just, you can't just leave the car on autopilot. You can't just trust the lane avoidance to keep you in the lane. You, you have to wake up. And if you're a follower of Jesus and that's not happening, you've got to check yourself. Because when Jesus arrives and he arrives, he lets you know that he is present. There should be a shift. There should be repentance in the life of a believer. There should be conviction in the life of a believer. There should be moments of illumination where the scriptures become real to you in a way they were not before in the life of a believer. And if you are doing your life on autopilot, you need to wake up. Because something supernatural is happening around you and you are completely missing it. God wants to do something in you and you're asleep as he arrives. How can we open the door to Jesus? Very quickly, very briefly, we have to find ourselves in John's place. And when Jesus says, this is righteousness, we have to let it be. We have to let him do what he's going to do. We have to wake up, repent, right? See what's going on and remember The king arrives. Jesus is going to preach for the next nine chapters. And all through those nine chapters, people are going to be listening. They're going to be hearing. They're going to be engaging. And then they're going to stop. And there's going to be a long spiral as even the closest to him become hardened to his work we as followers of Christ we have the opportunity when Jesus steps into the waters of our lives we have the opportunity to see him as our king, our God the son of God our leader, our teacher our master and change but we have to shake off our complacency we have to be ready to recognize and see when he's at work. I like to think of myself as John. Not that I've ever worn camel hair that doesn't... And locusts absolutely revolt me. I mean, I don't even eat, like, cooked vegetables, so I don't know how I could possibly handle that. But John says no. No. Jesus says yes, John says no, Jesus says yes, and John says okay, and gets to see the revelation of the Son of God. You can say no, or you can say yes, you can try to operate on your complacent category motion, or you can open the door to the possibility of the Son of God being revealed And shifting some authority in your life, transforming some things about you, making your spiritual life more alive, more vibrant, more true, and honestly, just more Jesus-focused. Would you join me in a word of prayer? We always say, Jesus, that everything we do is about you. But we can even get comfortable in that. We can miss what you're doing. Help us to repent, to shake off our perspective and see your arrival, your transformation, your power, your sovereignty. May we always be stepping toward what you would have us to do, seeing your glory being renewed and revived and challenged and convicted and always watching for your work in us, always willing to be your people. We pray this, Jesus, in your name.